Hello, you are listening to an episode of Trade Talks, a podcast about the economics of trade policy. I'm Samaya Keynes, the Trade and Globalization Editor for The Economist. And I'm Chad Bound, a senior fellow with the Peterson Institute for International Economics. So, this has been an eventful week, and one that has brought us President-elect Biden. Uh, And in this episode, we thought we would exchange some hot, hot takes about what that might mean for the future of trade policy. Here is Biden on the stump. He's going to use the buy American products, support American jobs. We're going to make trade. It's trade tragedy that fights for every American worker and every American job and actually get results. Not Trump's chaotic trade war, erratic tweets and bluster that's only stiffed American workers and consumers, including farmers. He's let you down. He's let us down. I promise you, I will stand up to China's trade abuses and I will invest in the American worker. And also in this episode, we're going to be joined by a very special guest. Hi, yeah, my name is Doug Palmer. I am the senior trade reporter at Politico. Thanks, Doug. Uh, I think it's it's great to have you. Doug is one of my favorite trade reporters. So, Doug, I think we can all agree that the, the Biden administration will probably be a, a bit calmer than this last one. So what have you been hearing about who is going to be running the trade policy show for them? Well, it's pretty quiet. I mean, the, the the Biden administration itself is not dropping any hints about about who they would like to see. So there's you know a lot of names circulating. There's some you know policy wonk names like Mike Wessel, who's a commissioner on the U.S. China Economic and Security Review Commission. He would be uh, sort of on the left leaning side. Jennifer Hillman, um, a very experienced trade person, her name has come up. There's also like former. Obama administration officials whose names get mentioned, Darcy Vetter, who was the uh, chief agricultural negotiator during during the, the Obama administration, and uh, Michael Punk, who was uh, U.S. ambassador to the WTO. And you also hear, like, uh, you know, lawmakers, you know, members of Congress, where trade is important in their district. So uh, people like uh, Cedric Richmond from Louisiana, uh, Stephanie Murphy from Florida, Jimmy Gomez. But but to be honest, I, I don't really have a firm sense uh, of, of who they're going to do. Another new name I heard today was former Congressman um, John Delaney, who was a big advocate for the Trans-Pacific Partnership. That makes me sort of I, I, I sort of question whether they would go for for someone who's so closely associated with that, but that is a name that that we heard today. Um Chad, I, I think I think something has gone wrong here. Uh your your name isn't on that list. Uh yeah, maybe it got lost with um either some of the mail in ballots or or maybe it was just brown. Maybe they they misspelled it. Um I guess we'll we'll see. Yeah, I have. Um, I'm actually having images of you um, walking into a trade negotiation, and you know, saying to the Europeans and the Chinese, "Hey guys, uh, my opening offer is that we unilaterally lower all the tariffs." Um, <laughs> yeah, I, I would be one of those um, worst trade negotiators ever, I guess. Great. Um, 
One thing I've been told is to watch out for whether they they pick someone who who knows something about trade or whether someone who is just put there for political balance. And and that is really a sign of of how seriously the administration is is going to take trade. Doug, what do you think? Well, I do I do think that they don't want to do a whole lot on trade to begin with. And so I think whoever they pick will probably have to go in with that understanding. You know, I mean, that said, a lot of people that I talk to think that they'll pick a politician rather than a technocrat. And um, it might be a politician who would be more helpful at this time in terms of, you know, mending relations with allies and and working at the WTO, trying to solve the appellate body crisis and, and, uh, you know, pushing forward on reform and deciding on a new director general. I guess one last thing to add here is that I've been told that under the Trump administration, the the intra-agency process didn't work that well. So this is the process whereby typically USDR makes sure that all the agencies are on the same page. Uh, And that was a problem under the Trump administration because sometimes the president would just announce things before that process had really run through and then they identified problems um, and then some things never made it to implementation. So under a Biden administration, just in terms of who would be running the show, there would be more people running the show. There would be uh, more healthier communication between different parts of, of government. And so I guess from that perspective, who they actually pick as as being the U.S. trade representative probably matters a lot less. You know, you're more likely to end up with a, a coherent, strategic, cohesive policy, you know, if you actually use this, this interagency process effectively. Okay, so I think that brings us on to our next question, the big one, of what a Biden administration would actually have to do. And there are two ways of coming at this. Uh, one is to to look at what Biden promised um, in his his campaign pledges, and then another one is just to look at the decisions that are that are coming up. Right? He didn't necessarily spell out what he would do on all of the the big you know conflicts that that are coming up, um, or the big decisions that are that are approaching. So, so thinking about those practical decisions, I think the first one to land on a Biden trade policymaker's desk is going to be what to do about the World Trade Organization's next director general. So some people may not have been paying 100% close attention. You know, There have been a few distractions. But essentially, the Trump administration has blocked Ngozi Okonjo-Iweala, the Nigerian candidate and also re- recent trade talks guest. And so, so essentially, there's a stalemate at the WTO. Uh, on November 6th, the meeting to sort of formally pick the winner was postponed, I think, indefinitely. And I think the rest of the world is just waiting for for a Biden administration to come in and give the nod to Ngozi. Chad, what do you think is going to happen? Yeah, I, th- I think in principle, um, there probably isn't a, a whole lot of opposition. I guess the one worrisome sign that could throw uh, a monkey wrench in the works is this statement by Chuck Grassley uh, at the end of October, you know, sh- showing support for the, the South Korean candidate after the, the consensus had sort of formed. And he's important because, you know, he's the chair of the, the Senate Finance Committee in the, in the U.S. and so it plays a big role on trade. And so it, it, I guess we'll have to wait and see. This could be a potential sticking point and, and you know, there isn't a consensus or there's more going on behind the scenes uh, in American politics that we're aware of. Yeah, I just think it's the kind of thing where – uh, an incoming Biden administration is going to face pressure from world leaders to just, just get this done. And it it seems like a relatively cheap way of showing willing. 
of being a little bit more constructive towards the international system. But, you know, we'll see. Uh, I've I've made too many optimistic projections about the WTO recently, so I'm going to avoid making any more. I guess the other the other WTO related issue that could come up relatively quickly is the issue of the appellate body, which the Trump administration has has blocked. Now there, I, I suspect that will drag on for longer. By now, it's, it's not a particularly novel point to say that there is bipartisan consensus within the US, that there are problems with the way that the appellate body was being run, and that if it were to be reinstated, that reforms would be desired or demanded. I, I agree with that. This is also not going to be a really, really quick fix. Um, when it comes to the, the the appellate body, even if you have you know somebody who's running things that is really well-meaning and and wants to put a, a big priority on getting something done. And we know that this is a huge priority for for the Europeans as well. And we've heard a lot from uh, the, the incoming Biden administration about a desire to work better with allies and, and treat them with greater respect um, than has been the case over the last four years. So, Doug, we we talk about this a lot, and the Biden administration has said they they would like to do it, but they haven't yet been good at spelling out what that would actually mean. Uh, on that, I guess you could do something about the, the the steel tariffs. That would go a long way towards improving relations with the EU. It's difficult to know what it is he could do there. Some people have suggested that they replace the tariffs with generous tariff rate quotas. So that might be one thing they could do. They could loosen up the tariff exclusion process just to make it easier for companies to get exclusions from the tariffs. And therefore, you wouldn't have the big headline of like, you know, Biden has removed tariffs on Europe. But but maybe in effect, you could accomplish something something similar. Yeah, on the steel tariffs, that that's another one where the Biden campaign hasn't said uh, what they're going to do. They certainly haven't said that they're they're planning to lift the tariffs. And going back to the WTO, they're going to face pressure to to act more constructively toward the WTO. And if they're going to take this more multilateral approach, remember the way the Trump administration imposed those steel tariffs in the first place was in the name of protecting America's national security. It was done unilaterally. A, a, sort of abusing a loophole in in the rules. And a number of other countries disputed that. And this has put the WTO in a really, really awkward position of potentially having to adjudicate this issue. And I think if you're the Biden administration, you you want to avoid that, right? If you're a multilateralist, you don't want to put the WTO into the position of having to make rulings on whether or not what a country is doing is in its national security interests or not, right? It's a no-win situation for, for the WTO. And so I think this is another issue that they're going to have to confront and, and deal with relatively quickly. So maybe, you know, the, the Biden people look for a way to resolve the issue in, in some sort of WTO consistent way, maybe convert the tariffs into some other form of tariffs, negotiate with trading partners to resolve it. Yeah, I, I think reading through the Biden campaign's pledges, it becomes obvious that this is really not an easy area for them. There are a lot of pledges to strengthen Buy America provisions, to direct more federal funds towards US-made steel. I just don't get the impression that they're very excited about opening up the steel industry to a, a lot more foreign competition. 
And so that steel one is is important, but working with allies, you know, even with the EU, there's there's a lot of other irritants that are still out there. I think we're we're hopeful that we might get a settlement in the ongoing Airbus and Boeing dispute, but that's certainly out there. We've also got these digital services taxes that are on the way and and the potential American retaliation there. Yeah, if you if you um remember back to yesteryear when the USTR went through this whole investigation of the French digital services tax. Um, they they published a tariff list. They were they were ready to go, and then there was this meeting between um, Bruno Le Maire and um, Stephen Mnuchin. I suspect Lighthouse was was there as well, um, where they basically agreed to to suspend the tariffs until January 6, 2021, and the French said they wouldn't collect the digital services tax revenue. So the, the French law is on the books, so they're just not going to collect any revenue. And the French said, okay, well, we won't collect any revenue as long as this OECD process looks like it's still going. So there's this multilateral negotiation to reform international corporation tax. And, and while that looks like it could deliver something, the French said, you know, we'll, we'll wait. Now, since that's happened, it's become very obvious that the OECD process is not going to conclude um, before before January 6th. The French have been sounding pretty tough about collecting the revenue. I'm, I'm almost certain that they are going to start collecting it. Now that that suspension date, it ends while Lighthizer would still be in post. Um, so it's possible that, you know, one of their, their farewell actions could be just applying a bunch of tariffs on, on French imports. <laughs> I I think it's an area where, again, you've got this bipartisan agreement that the French shouldn't be going off and, and taxing American companies in a way that they, they think is discriminatory. So that's going to be a, an obvious fight that a Biden administration will have to work out with, with the French and with the EU. That being said, this is this space is always moving. You know, since all of this started, we have a, a Department of Justice investigation of of Google uh, on antitrust grounds here in the United States. A Biden administration might have a slightly different perspective on on the big tech companies. You know, certainly some of the some of the folks in the Democratic Party have have very strong views about increasing regulations on on you know big tech. So again, the the next date to watch on this is is January sixth. Yeah, if you're importing lipstick, handbags, or soap from France, uh, then watch out. So let's turn next to to talk about enforcement or areas where we might see some Biden administration action on the offensive side. So it's it's inheriting a number of actions that the Trump administration has has started um, that they're going to have to figure out what to do with. And so that would include a Section 301 investigation on Vietnam, on their both currency practices and, and lumber trade. So that that's one. Section 301 is the same law that the Trump administration used to, to, to implement all the tariffs on China. And then you have a number of these national security investigations, the 232s, on various products that they have ongoing as well. I wouldn't be surprised with the Biden administration to see fewer of these national security uh, types of investigation, but I'm not sure about the Section 301s. And I think part of that, again, ties back to you know what approaches they would, they would take with the WTO and whether or not they would use the WTO and dispute settlement to pursue the, the concerns that they have with other countries. 
Yeah, I think I think while the appellate body isn't really functioning, I'm not sure it makes sense to put that much effort into filing new WTO cases. I think there are other ways to toughen up an enforcement that are within a rules-based system. So the first um, would be using this rule that stops the import of goods made with forced labor into, into the US. That was as part of a, a uh, a loophole was removed that made that much more important that happened in 2016 and, and you can see enforcement actions rising um, and, the, and the really obvious big one is that there are lots of concerns that that in Xinjiang in China uh, the Uyghur population is essentially being forced to produce various products and that, that those products should be banned from entry into the US so so we've actually got an episode coming up on this um, so watch this space um, and then the other area is in the USMCA, so this, this trade deal with Mexico and Canada, where there were these new labor provisions and a new rapid enforcement, rapid response mechanism where one could apply hard you know, trade sanctions, so, so tariffs or, or, or blocking the, the goods at the border, um, if it transpired that workers in the Mexican plants didn't have the right to organize. Doug, have you been, have you been following this? Richard Trumpka, the president of the AFL-CIO, um, had said that they were going to file a case before the election, but then they never got around to doing it. And um, I don't really know the reason why. I sort of wondered if they didn't want to give uh, Trump the political opportunity to like accept the case and be able to, to have the benefit of looking uh, tough on trade with, with Mexico. Oh, so I actually wrote about this a few weeks ago. And, and, and the reason given to me by the AFL-CIO was that they, they really wanted to gather um, great evidence. Um, and it had, been, it had been challenging to gather it, partly because of COVID. You know, they, they wanted their first case to be really, really strong. Right. Well, I, I may be too cynical. I mean, it may be entirely what you, what, what you said there. So, yeah, I, I suppose if it was political, then they might not have wanted to be so public about that. So I, I don't think they're exclusive. Yeah, I, I suspect that they probably will bring a test case, um, at least to, to show that they're serious about enforcement of, of these labor provisions. But they might want to, to pick one that's resolvable, that the Mexicans can actually fix so that the, that the Mexican government actually doesn't lose face, given the importance of, of the relationship between the two countries. And then back to China, I, I agree. I don't think this, uh, the Xinjiang cases and the issues there are going away anytime soon. So let's, let's talk about China some more. And, and I think this is another yet another area where the Biden administration hasn't been crystal clear about what it would do. And, uh, and obviously, the, the thing that's going to land on Biden, Biden presidency's desk is the phase one deal and what, what to do about that. Chad, what, what do you think is going on there? So I think two things. So first, in the agreement, you know, China did commit to some some minor reforms to opening up the financial services sector to getting rid of some some non-tariff barriers technical barriers on agricultural products in particular and it looks like China has done a relatively good job in those areas but then you know the sort of the, the headline what everybody's been following is much more of the the purchase commitments you know is China going to get close to reaching this additional 200 billion dollars worth of American exports and when sorry when you say everyone, 
that is mainly you, right? I mean, I'm not sure we can like, we we probably need to point out that you've done your bit in terms of highlighting that. I provide the numbers that the people want. Uh, If there were no demand, there would be no supply. So, you know, looking at the numbers, um, when it comes to the agricultural purchases, it's kind of a mixed story. Soybeans, where all the action is, they're such a big part of, of the deal. You know, they're they're not making the progress on, on soybeans that you would need to make to get get to the numbers. But in some other smaller products, um, China's doing relatively well on pork and corn and, and things like that. Overall, though, you know, it's it's not been great. They're not going to get close, at least this year. And I think the the, the question for a, a Biden administration is, you know, do you continue on with this approach? And there's clearly a lot of economic reasons about why this is not a good approach. And we've already talked about those at length, so we don't need to repeat them. But politically, it seems to me that this would be a no-win situation for for a Biden administration. Remember, the targets are for an additional $200 billion of U.S. exports by the end of 2021. If China somehow reaches the targets, you know, the the Trump administration would, would get credit for it politically. But, but if China didn't, the, the Biden administration would likely get blamed somehow, you know, for not using these really non-transparent enforcement mechanisms that are in the agreement um, to, to somehow, you know, get China to that $200 billion. That and it just complicates the relationship with allies. If it turns out all along that what, what China has been doing is buying more stuff from the United States and less stuff from allies. So obviously, this is a really important decision uh, for, for the Biden administration. But politically, it just doesn't seem to have a lot of upside to, to keep the focus on these purchase commitments. So I guess that's that's phase one. I've been excited about phase two for a while because, you know, that's just a, just a few months of hard effort and we'd, we'd get there, right? Um, so yeah, I don't, I don't think there's going to be a phase two anytime soon. And, and I guess the, the question I'm looking out for is, you know, what, what the Biden administration does um, in terms of combining the trade relationship with other aspects of the relationship. I think it's been it's been pretty striking how Ambassador Lighthizer managed to keep the trade stuff separate from other parts of the relationship as they have deteriorated quite a lot since when they they signed the phase one deal. Um, and so yeah, that I suppose that could go either way, right? It could be that a Biden administration decides, you know what, we need to cooperate with the Chinese on climate change. And so maybe we're going to go a bit easier on this this trade stuff. Or they decide, you know what, you know, this other stuff, the you know, national security things, um, human rights, that just makes the, the trade stuff much more toxic and much harder to, to reach some kind of constructive uh, of agreement. I agree. And even if you have the Biden administration you know, indicating that they do want to work more constructively with with China on on some trade issues. There, there's the big question of of how, and they've said that they'll work with allies. But if they're serious about this, the big question is, you know, how do you do it in practice? There is the trilateral process: the U.S., EU, Japan getting together and and rolling out some potential new rules for things like subsidies. That's something that they could pick up, and I guess that will be the first thing that that I would be looking out for. Yeah, we'll see. I, you know, we we can hope. So, in this last section, I want us to talk about trade deals, um, as I think some people think that's what trade policy is. So, there are there are some negotiations going on, um, one between the U.S. and the U.K., um, and another between the U.S. and Kenya. So, maybe let's do the second one of those first. Doug, Doug, what have you been hearing? Well, I think I, I'm glad you mentioned that because I think the 
The second round wraps up um, on Monday, but I haven't really heard very much from the negotiations, I have to say. I can't imagine that those talks are going to end anytime soon unless Kennedy just rolls over and accepts everything that the U.S. that the U.S. wants. But um, I would imagine that once they really find out what a U.S. trade agreement's all about, um, that there would be some stuff in there that would be hard for them to swallow. I mean, in terms of whether Biden would take it up or not, I, I, I really don't know. I mean, it would be great for the U.S. to have a free trade agreement with with Africa. I mean, I could see how that would be appealing to to, to Biden to, to to get something to get something like that. But whether it'd be at the top of his list or not, I'm not I'm not sure. So I've always been fairly skeptical of of a UK US trade deal. Um, I don't think there's huge appetite from the British public to go further towards the the American system of food regulation, for example. And then the question is, well, without significant market access to to the British food consumers, how interesting is this deal for for the US Congress? There's a bit of a time crunch. There's been some attention recently to to trade promotion authority, which is this bit of of legislation that that gives USDR the authority to go out and negotiate these trade deals, and then and then when they it means that when they bring the trade deal back to Congress, it can be passed without amendments in the House, um, and then the Senate can't filibuster it, can't can't just block it. And so that that piece of legislation expires in July, and and really you have to tell Congress that you would sign the deal by April first. Um, so if they want to use that particular piece of um, legislation, if they want to to get it through without having to fight to get that authority renewed, the timeline is pretty tight. Yeah, I'm just not optimistic that the TPA expiration is is going to force the Biden administration's hand on a, on a really quick U.S. U.K. deal. On the American side. You know, obviously there are these agricultural interests, but given what the UK does well on things like financial services and pharmaceuticals, you know, there's a lot to negotiate on on the US side that will be of critical importance to a Biden administration. And the Trump administration has been playing things really close to the vest in terms of how they're negotiating this. And so it's not clear, you know, what's actually in this agreement. The Biden administration would need to look at it. And I just don't think that there's there's time to, to beat that deadline. And it's doubtful that they would just simply take a, a deal that the Trump administration had negotiated, accept it as their own, and then spend that political capital to, to get it through Congress. I mean, historically, that's that's not how this has traditionally worked in the United States when new administrations come in. Obviously, President Trump himself, with the Trans-Pacific Partnership Agreement that the Obama administration had negotiated, uh, refused to implement that. He killed it altogether. But even other examples where uh, administrations ultimately accepted deals, um, you know, it took a substantial renegotiation to get them over the finish line. This is what the Obama administration did with Korea, Colombia, and Peru back in 2009, and even what Bill Clinton did with the original NAFTA back in 1993. And so because a a U.S.-U.K. agreement is so important both for the two countries, uh, but, you know, with their relationships with the European Union, and then politically, the, the Irish border issue as well, I'm just not optimistic this thing is happening anytime soon. Yeah, I I wonder if altogether um, this means that trade under a Biden administration is just going to get quite a bit more dull, Doug? Right, yeah. 
Well, that's it. I mean, I I do expect that trade will be will become boring again. I mean, I think that there will be far less um, media attention paid to it. Maybe not at first, but 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 eventually, I think that people will just lose interest because I. Not that there won't be anything going be going on, but it, it won't be stuff that 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 um, newspaper editors find particularly sexy. Yeah, I can see that as, as problematic for you print people, but what about podcast listeners? Yeah, I think that might be one area where um, even if there's no demand, there will be supply. <laughs> um, uh, and I, I think on that note, um, that is all for Trade Talks. Um, a huge thanks to Doug Palmer of Politico. Thanks to Colin Warren, our audio guy. Do follow us on Twitter. I'm at, at Samaya Keynes. And I'm at Chad Bound. And we're on at trade underscore underscore talks. That's not one but two underscores, at trade underscore underscore talks. Okay, so Chad, um, if trade gets super boring, we could rebrand. Um, so what will become exciting under the Biden administration? Climate underscore underscore change. Yeah, I'm into it. I'm into it. Let's do it. Okay, I'll go to... Although, wait, I'm not into climate change. I'm into stopping climate change. Okay. Okay, I think we'll we'll do some workshopping. This needs some work. All right, but we have to go out and grab the Twitter handles, so we've got to move quick. Yeah, maybe maybe we just have one underscore. Oh.